do it once in the summer where you do the whole like sleeping Gonzalez in the van driving coast to coast just so you've we done it. Do it once. But you're, like I think you're you're better off like focusing going down the west coast or going to Europe or something which I'm sure will happen for you folks eventually. That's, that's really nice of you to say. Um so the show is on the 27th. Uh you've got a Zola, you've got Zola's opening like an acoustic vibe for yeah. you. That's great. Yeah. Um and then we're playing a show together on November 9th. Oh, yeah, which is are. great. We haven't I haven't announced it yet because I'm waiting for the poster, but like it will happen very soon. That's awesome. Um, any I'm, other any other shows you guys got coming up? You want to plug? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Big Tell one me. at three three three. Oh great. October eleventh. Yeah, it's it's like our little birthday bash thing. We're all Libras. We're yeah. all born in October, so we're just mashing Triple them all Libra. together. All together. No, Quadruple Nick's a Libra. Libra. Nick's quadruple Libra. Quadruple he was born Libra. the day after Christian and I. Okay. On this in the in same 90, year. Ni- 1995. Okay. And it was meant to be. It was written. In the so stars. the yeah the three 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 venue is closing down at the end of October. So we snuck in a final show because it's the most fun venue to play at by far. You can That's do the anything wildest. there. Like we yeah. were throwing bananas yeah. and Lucky Charms everywhere, and pinata, pinatas, pinata full of Lucky Charms. Allie almost just... decked someone in the face with a bat. No, no, they they making that up. <laughs> <laughs> There's video evidence. There's video. No, evidence. no, it's just the. It wasn't on purpose, Allie. It's okay. We know you're not like a monster, but you come came really close <laughs> to breaking that person's nose. Uh, Allie was committed to the moment. Yeah, she was. I, was she was, I respect I was it. it. She held back just enough. Um, that was October 9th. October eleventh. Oh, October eleventh. October eleventh. Three three three. Please come. It's gonna be like it's gonna be the three 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 shows are the funnest. They're pretty rowdy. It's and it's sad that it's. Uh, I didn't know it was closing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's too bad. I don't know if we. I don't know um, if we'll ever get to play at a venue that cool in Vancouver again. We'll see what else opens up. Redgate's pretty cool. I'm sure that on the. On the biggest days, <clears throat> that it can get pretty rowdy. And that's where we're playing. Right? That's where we're playing. Yeah, yeah sweet. Yeah. But uh, yeah, three, three, three. We're playing with um, Black Pontiac, cool. who are also local, and Melt, who just ah. put out their uh, full length LP last Friday. It's great. And they're really cool. Yeah, I listened to it yesterday. It's sick. Yeah, a lot of Tame Impala. Very Tame Impala. Yeah, very Tame. Very and I tame and I got it confirmed. We were on the same radio show last saturday on pacific sound and i met, oh, met great. them and right away we just launched into a tame impala just like convo yeah i don't want to call it combo we were just basically fanning really hard, hard like, fan girl, like whole fangirl thing it yeah was awesome. it was it was intense um well we're just about out of time so i just want to say thank you for coming and playing noise complaint Really great performance. I loved. I loved it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Appreciate so it. My yeah. only complaint is that we didn't talk about bright eyes more, but we can do that <laughs> in a sec. It seems like it always comes back to bright eyes for us. <laughs> There's uh, a reason we do what we do. You know what? It makes me really happy that to meet other bright eyes fans that are younger than me, because you know you you don't want these things to die. And, right. No. And, um, it won't. Our children will listen to bright eyes. <laughs> <I> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise. I think mine will too. Um, <laughs> we're deciding that right now. Did you guys ever listen to Pedro the Lion when you were growing up? I've never. No. Heard. Okay, I want to. I'm gonna send the show off on one song because Pedro the Lion. Yeah, That's Pedro the Lion. Um, I mean, I'm just doing this on the fly. I don't even know if I'm gonna be able to find it. But your song about the car crash. 
oh, reminded yeah. me of of this because um, it's a song about a car crash. I loved that song, by the way. That line about Bones. like washing, getting washed off the sidewalk. Oh, oh, we're God. the Fuck. ones getting hosed off of the road. I I had a like I heard stories that, about though. how they clean pe- people off the road. It's somebody's job to hose. I mean, it stays with you. you no, gotta, people got to write about this stuff, man. Like, it's cool. I, I'm, I'm glad somebody's doing it. If it's us, I'm glad. Or that's Pedro. A, that's line. a cross. I'm glad to be bearing. Well, there's, there were lots of moments, like, lots of images in your songs, uh, that I, that I really like. You know, the like catching each other's colds, and uh, my favorite one that I heard. I don't know if you played it during the session, but it's in one of your tunes. It's the. Uh, the one about the barista knowing your name, but, ah. but spelling it spelling get, it wrong. I get roasted for that line all the yeah. time. Why? Like, they're like, you're so sensitive, man. <laughs> Just like, she spe- like they spell your name wrong. No, Just but like, that's like that's such a moment of like. That happens to a million people every day. Yeah, and it's just about like the ways that you could almost connect with somebody exactly. in a genuine way, but it's just slightly off. It's no, I'm so with you. <laughs> so I wasn't laughing because I thought it was bad. I was laughing because it's the perfect, it encapsulates the millennial ennui so well. Yes, yeah. Um, okay, on that note, I found the song. So it's actually Headphones, which is a side project of David Bazan, who was the songwriter in headphone or in Pedro the Lion. Uh you you guys will I think I'm, I think yeah, you'll dig it. Um so hey, thanks for tuning in everybody. You're listening to CITR. That was Sleepy Gonzalez. The show is on September twenty seventh at six oh four. Although it's sold out, so unless you have tickets you can't go. The record is called Mellow Trauma. Um <laughs> Come <and> I, to <laughs> October eleventh at the three three three. Yeah, that's your next chance to see Sleepy G and uh, we will see you next time. Here's slow car crash by headphones.
listening to the Arts Report here at CITR Radio at 101.9 FM, broadcasting live from the unceded Musqueam Territory in Vancouver here in the UBC Point Grey campus. I am Lua, and I am here with... Sarah, hello. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say hi, but then decided to say hello. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so, because of our little glitch on last show, we actually have a lot of things planned out for you today. And we're going to start with a few, well, we're going to start with a review, and then we're going to have an interview, and then another review, just so no one's overwhelmed with anything. So, first off, what Sarah, you went to see Mother of the Maid. Do oh, yes, I did. Do you want to yes, talk I a little did. bit about that? I would love to talk about it. Um, okay, so Mother of the Maid, it is the story of Joan of Arc, but it is not told, you know, by... The main character is not Joan of Arc. The main character is her mother, so mother of the maid. Um, And it is really interesting because you get to see such a different perspective from when Joan decides to lead the army, you know, makes the first decision to um, during the times and after, you know... um, I don't want to give any spoilers for, you know, people who do not know the story. But at the same time, it's like, it's Jonah Arc. Yeah, I know, right? But also because it's, yeah, but some people may not know it and then they see it and it's... Okay, I'm going to give a a quick history recap from what I, when I learned it. I don't even know if it's going to be 100% correct because I learned this a long time ago. But basically, Joan of Arc um, was this woman who got... Uh, well, vision. according to history, she heard the voice of God. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, people speculate that she was a schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. Um, in um, the play, it's so she sees she has holy visions of Saint Catherine. Yeah, so she hears the voice of God, or like has some holy mm-hmm. under I don't know something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what, what you call it, like a, a vision or a, a holy calling. Uh-huh. That makes her want to go to war and fight the the Catholic war. Yeah, and she wants to lead the army. Yeah, basically. and so that's the general mm-hmm. idea yeah. of the story, her story, right? Yes, exactly. And then the story starts with Isabel, Joan's mother, and it's kind of different in a way that Isabel is both kind of the narrator but she doesn't narrate all the time. It's only when she's alone on stage. And she's also playing, you know, because she's the main character. And, okay, so some stuff I want to say. This was a really good play. I cried a lot. It was really emotional. The acting was amazing. Okay, I cannot tell you. The woman behind me was sobbing. And <laughs> hearing her made me cry even more. And I had makeup on. I was like, I don't want to cry. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, yeah, so the first half of the show was more funnier rather than emotional, let's say. And the second half of the show, oh boy, get ready to cry. You better, you know, bring some tissues with you for sure. And it was interesting because, as I said, we've always heard or read the story from Joan's side, right? We've never actually thought about how, the, as a mother, uh, Isabel would have felt, you know, sending her daughter to to fight, basically. She could die. She could, I don't know, stuff could happen. She was worried about the other people in the army touching her and, you know, because well she is a woman it is even more difficult for her to lead an army let alone you know be in yeah, it what year was this again like this um like really old <laughs> <laughs> like before even colonialism right oh yeah um so um, rely on my just great google, google. <laughs> joan Farrick is actually a saint so she was I don't know the word she in English. She was made. Uh, she was made a saint. Yeah. Um, I don't know the word in English, but the word in Portuguese is canonizada. Yeah, um, I don't know Portuguese. Sorry. If you speak Portuguese, like hopefully no, no. you got that. <laughs> um, but that was 1412. Man, she, that's old. That, that was when she was born in 1412, and she died in 1431. Yep, that is a very know. short life right there. It is. And I mean, the her death in the play was... Man, that's when I started crying. Um, I don't want to say any more about that. Anyways, um, so... She's going to start crying again. <laughs> I'm gonna, yeah, I will. Oh my, it was so good. Okay, the the girl playing Joan, both Isabel and Joan, they were both amazing. I mean, all the other actors were, of course, they were great. But they were the two main. And so just to see their chemistry on stage let's say it wasn't forced it was really good it was like you were watching an actual mother and daughter it was amazing i want to say some stuff about the set it was minimalistic which i enjoyed a lot it because it was a small um was called stage it wasn't like so if you've ever been to the pacific theater you'd see that it's not like a normal stage you know elevated and then audience on one side it's the stage is on the lowest part, let's say, on the ground, and then there are audiences on either side of the of the stage. So is it a bl kind of like a black box? Yeah, kind of. Let's say half black box. <laughs> and yeah, so they managed to, you know, play for both sides, and they were the audience was on opposite sides. That was really good. Um, so one thing I really enjoy about theater is when they actually use props, you know, and actual things. So in the one thing, okay, I'm going to come to that when we do the review of A Thousand Splendid Sons. So in that too, they use, you know, yeah, actual props. They have spoons and I don't know, they don't, you know, act like they're eating out of an imaginary bowl. But they don't have the food in it in A Thousand Splendid Sons. But in Made of Mother of the Maid, they actually had the food, the water, everything. Everything was, you so, know, there. So, so they kind of focused on the props instead of focusing on the set. Yeah, exactly. That's and I think that made it really good because, you know, you could see when, for example, let's say Isabel was drinking quote-unquote wine, um, you could see how 
actually thirsty she was from you know walking that far to see Joan and stuff like that you because I mean yeah actors are good they can actors you, are good yeah they they're good at you know acting like they're actually drinking something but it's not the, the same. same as actually drinking or eating so and it's not the same as you seeing them drink or yeah eat, right? exactly one pet peeve of mine about theater is that when they don't you know put water in the water glass or like put food in the bowl or stuff like that and the fact that they did this I was so impressed I I enjoyed it a lot honestly um go see this show yeah, go see so this play Mother of the Maid which was written by Jane Anderson mm-hmm. is and is being put on by the Pacific Theater at the Pacific Theater exactly <laughs> <laughs> is going on until October 5th and that's interesting. One of the the sentences that they use to like, kind of like pull the audience in, is "Are our destinies determined for us?" Mm, yeah. And so, also, if you don't know Pacific Theater, they have amazing cover art. Please take a look at the art. Yeah. Like, it's really really great. Um, I just want to keep watching, like looking at this image. Yeah. <laughs> it's so pretty. And yeah, I mean, you heard it here. It's an amazing show. Um, whether you like Joan of Arc, you know her story or not. It doesn't matter. Honestly, I wasn't I didn't have a lot of information on Joan of Arc and I went into this with, you know, my information from ninth grade in high school and a while back. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it a lot. It was really good. Oh man, yeah. And so now we're going to have a quick interview that we were supposed to air last week, but it's okay because it gives me a chance to talk about VIF. So the interview um, is um, the interview that we're going to play right now. Is a and hello, everyone. Interview. This is Lua. And, and today I am here with John Walker on the phone, who is the producer, director, writer, and uh, the narrator much, of the documentary Assholes, A Theory. Um, hello, the John. So hello. Yeah. How are you today? I'll leave you guys with I'm that. I'm very good. Thank you. I'm at the Atlantic Film Festival right now. Wow. That's super exciting. Um, and so... Assholes of Theory is coming to Vancouver very, very soon. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? Oh, it's great. I've, I've uh, shown quite a few of my films in Vancouver. Uh, I love Vancouver, and even better, my daughter's living there now, so I'm looking forward to coming. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. So happy to yeah. hear. And so Assholes of Theory is a very interesting documentary. Um, I watched it this morning. It was honestly enlightening in some senses. Um, very interesting theory, and it the idea for you to make this film comes from the book, also titled "Assholes: A Theory." Correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so I was wondering, what inspired you to turn this book into this documentary? Well, when I, when I first read the book, I uh, first I, first of all I started asking myself, "Geez, have I ever been, uh, you know, an asshole?" This behavior and that makes you question question your behavior and so on. So I found that very interesting. And it was a very timely book. It was a critique of, uh, you know, a critique of, of capitalism as it stands today and of, of certain characters that, that are, uh, you know, running. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's mainly a male domain, this this kind of behavior. So um, first thing I actually wanted to do was uh, give my daughter a copy of the book uh, to give her sort of some, some grounding in how not to have to deal with assholes. Um, and uh, and then the second the second idea was I think this would make a great documentary. So uh, the book was very inspiring. 
And does it come this this idea this the need or the wish to create this film was it because of the political climate um, or yes I, yes it seemed it seemed very timely I mean I, I mean I think it's even more timely now that uh, as, as things have been involving particularly uh, south of our border um, than when it was I mean it was first written in 2014 I've been you know working on it for a couple of years so. In fact, we started working on it before the election in the United States, so uh, it, it's, it's become more timely. But you know, we, in, in the film, we're, we're looking at it from the point of view of the impact of this kind of behavior on the on the individual. Uh, you know, the negative impact that working with or having a you know asshole you know partner, uh, working for an asshole boss, uh, to the bigger picture. Uh, if the economy is being run by by assholery, and uh, you know, God help you if your if your country's being run by an asshole. So we go from the very micro to the macro uh, in the film, and uh, and look at uh, all aspects of this uh, of this behavior that that seemingly is on the rise. I think that's what Aaron was was, uh, was uh, intimate, you know, intimating uh, in the book. But um, as he says at the end of the film, he had no idea how how far it would, how far and how quickly it would go forward. You know. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's actually going to be my next question. Um, although it's going to be released um, this year or next year, the, fu- the full theatrical release of this film is going to be yes, 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 in November. In November. November um, this year, yeah. I found it, yeah. as I was watching, I was like, wow, they didn't include neither Trump or Bolsonaro, for example, these rising rightist um, leaders. And I was curious, and now that I understand that it was actually filmed in 2014, that makes a lot more no, sense. No, it wasn't filmed. No, no it wasn't filmed. It was, it was written in 2014. Written in 2014. Right, right, yeah. But but the the, the film is, is inspired by the book. It's not taking the book, you know, Word for word, of course, the mm-hmm. book is a very different form, you know. Um, but the, the the reason that we don't uh, talk to uh, Mr. T, uh, not talk to him, but I mean, and you know, because he's the elephant in the room, you know. And uh, you know, there's there's no point. And we knew everybody would be thinking about him, and uh, you know, it's the elephant in the room, and it's it's a just he's he gets so much exposure. And he's on everybody's minds, and so and and we we dealt with that in, the, in a different way in the film. And it's an interesting and choice, for also, sure. Also, also, yeah, and also the choice to, you know, I had a conversation with uh, with Aaron. He said, "No, what you know, after the election, what are you going to do?" I said, "We're going to ignore him completely, because the, the political point here is that the media, the traditional media, uh, empowers and emboldens assholes by giving them attention." And and the best thing to do with asshole behavior uh, in terms of vis-a-vis media is not to give them attention. You know they crave attention, um, and and so we empower them. So the sequence, I, one of the sequences in the film, is I point out, you know, with with uh, the former mayor of Toronto, Ford. Um, you know he was made into a media star. He was on every talk show in the United States. You know and and it empowered him. We show a sequence, you know, on the, on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Um, you know, it empowers them. And not only does it empower the individual to be, you know, um, interviewed and, and featured on, on, on major news shows, uh, it encourages others to say, hey, he's getting attention. Uh, that behavior is cool. You know, let, let's, let's, let's go that route. You know, if you, if you, let's be an asshole. We're going to get attention. 
So it encourages that kind of behavior. Uh, so that was kind of the, the point: is is to ignore uh, ignore one of the worst uh, examples of this uh, in the film. Yeah, and I think the lack of his mention is definitely very powerful. And so my next question is: the asshole theory is very gendered. Although there is a mention that, of course, there are women assholes. Um, this is a mostly male-dominated ter- territory, and even the definition of assholes that is proposed is him and his. And so why do you think this is a male-dominated? Yeah, so so it's... it's the reason it's male-dominated is how Aaron defines the asshole. And he defines it, the asshole as um, someone with a profound and deeply entrenched sense of entitlement, someone who feels that they can take special advantages and privileges because of this special entitlement that they have over others, feeling smarter, richer, uh, you know, more deserving than others, like they can take those special privileges. And there's a, an unwillingness to accept any kind of criticism of this behavior or these special advantages that they take. So that particular definition of, uh, I mean, you know, there has been research at Stanford University and, and we, you know, of bullying. Now, we define bullying in the film as asshole behavior from a male, like bullying women uh, as asshole behavior. And women can, can bully. You know, there's, there's statistics in the workplace. There's, a, you know, it's actually a very high percentage of women bully other women, interestingly, uh, not necessarily other men. So women can be nasty, and they, but... It's not their bullying, for example, is not out of a sense of entitlement, and they don't feel privileged. You know, so it's a different definition. Uh, so it, it's not that women are completely off the hook about not being able to be nasty and so on and so forth, but they don't fit the de- they don't fit so neatly the definition of this behavior. However, there you know, can be a woman that that wants to act like an asshole and and take on this male characteristic and and act in this way, uh, and they can be defined. Uh, by Aaron's definition, right? Mm-hmm. No, I, I yeah. agree. And it's very interesting yeah. to see this perspective where um, women are, you sometimes bully other women. And I feel that it sometimes comes from the opposite of the position of entitlement. It comes from the position of yeah. being insecure. Yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's, it's a whole different thing. And I'm not an expert on it, so I don't want to comment any further on, on that aspect. But But clearly, you know, when you talk about the sense of entitlement, I mean... The male culture has had this sense of entitlement for how long? Hundreds, thousands of years. I mean, there have been societies, of course, that were matriarchal and, and so on and so forth. But, but it's a very much entrenched. I mean, the women didn't have the vote how many years ago, and 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 our, you know, wages. You know, we don't pay women as much, and so on and so forth. So, you know, men have this sense of entitlement that they're that they're uh, you know more special, uh, more important. And, and it's deeply ingrained in, in a male culture, and it's going to take. I mean, it's, it is changing. It is you know the younger generation is, is definitely changing, but it's still a, a deeply ingrained cultural trait, uh, male trait that uh, going to take time to turn around. Mm-hmm. And so, over the documentary, there are moments that, to me, felt almost hopeless. Um, there were moments where, like. I know society has changed so much, and over the past years, it has improved in a lot of people's minds, and it really has improved in a lot yeah. of in a number of senses. But a lot of things still remain the same, and I think that do- this documentary highlights some of these things that are still the same and the assholes that are still in place. 
And so my question becomes, what were you hoping to accomplish with this film? Like, what was your right. end message yeah. with it? Yeah, so, you know, I, I see it as an activist film. Uh, you know, there's a lot of environmental films that just portray it's, it's, it's a nightmare. Uh, you know, uh, what do we do, you know? Um, what do we do about this problem? And But with, with this film, very clearly, at, at so many points in the film, uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, examples of what you can do, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it, it starts with one pushback, don't accept this behavior. So Sherry Benson Polchuk, the RCMP officer who fought for 20 years and put and pushed back against this behavior and won. Uh, you know, there was there was a um, class action suit against this behavior within the RCMP. Uh, the federal government appointed the first woman uh, head of the RCMP. So, you know, pushback. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you know, and... and it's not easy in her case. She was driven almost to the point of suicide, having to work with assholes. But but clearly she pushed back and won in the end. So we, we give that example. We also give another example of this of this teacher at Cornell University, and and we point out that Cornell Law School has a it operates under a no asshole rule. So these are these are, they're training the next lawyers. You know, this is an Ivy League university training lawyers who will be in top positions in the American culture. And, um, and they have a no asshole rule in terms of their policy, uh, of hiring policy. They won't tolerate asshole behavior within their within their staff. If they if they hire assholes, they, they fire them. They, you know, and they're very and they're very conscious of not perpetuating this kind of behavior towards their students. And one of these teachers uh, gave an example of pushing back against this asshole student, and turned him around. And he ended up thanking her in the end, uh, and becoming an A plus student. And she said, you know, she probably turned around the next potential CEO, asshole CEO of a big corporation. So, so, so just by, by, you know, saying, by pushing back and saying, no, this is not acceptable behavior. So we give example like that. The best example in the film uh, is the, uh, or one of the best examples is Baird, a financial institution. I mean, the, the 2008 financial crisis was, was when the, you know, assholes were in charge of the economy and, and it crashed. Seriously, um, Baird is, a, is an institution, a uh, financial institution that has a no-asshole rule, and they're highly successful. They're beating competition three to one, so you don't have to be an asshole to be successful. And anyway, there's a, it's an interesting sequence about uh, there is an option, and that's to ins- bring in a no-asshole rule in your institution, your company, or in your life, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Bring it into your life. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And what do you expect from VIF? Like, are, what are you excited about? Are there any other features that you really want to watch? Uh, well, I I always like you know I always try to catch up with uh, with what's going on with my colleagues in Canada. So uh, Vancouver is a great festival. They show a lot of Canadian films. Uh, so it's an opportunity to um, to see my colleagues' work. And uh, so that's 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 what I like to do. And support, uh, you know, support my friends and so on and so forth. And uh, so that's something I would like to do at, at the festivals. And Vancouver is particularly great for uh, showing Canadian work. Well, I'm excited for VIF to officially start and everyone get to, gets a chance to see this really cool documentary. Um, thank you so much for taking time, a time of your day and talking to me and doing this interview. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for having me. And yeah, well, thank you so much. And bye bye. Okay, bye for now.
And that was an interview with John Walker, the director, producer, writer, and narrator of Assholes A Theory. Um, And something to be said about the film itself, it is a very beautiful film in and of itself. The interviews are just very well positioned. It's a very beautiful film to just watch. And I did really have a great time watching it, although at times it felt like, what am I supposed to do? But as John said, the various moments of, at the end of the day, all you have to do is call people out and tell that that behavior is not acceptable. And hopefully in the next few years, we won't have a world run by assholes. And that's it for this section, I guess. And so now we're actually going to go into a little quick PSA and ad break. And when we come back, we're going to have a few shout outs and a few reviews. Um, Please stay tuned and we will be back shortly. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Your cell phone already has an FM receiver chip installed in it, but major Canadian telecommunication and mobile companies have blocked access to this free system to listen to the radio in favor of charging for data streaming. With access to the FM chip, your phone can still receive broadcasts and updates during an emergency, even if the cell towers are down. Visit freeradioonmyphone.ca to see how you can get involved by contacting your carrier and signing our petition. Discorder Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theatre, Discorder lives. Your favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theatre. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheatre.com. welcome back so i hope you enjoy that um as a reminder vif is starting on the september 26th and i'm so 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 excited it's going to go from september 26th to october 11th and we are going to cover so many different things that i'm so so excited about like i can't even contain like i can't even explain (laughs) how excited about because vif has so many amazing films that you won't get to see anywhere else for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, as a film festival, a lot of the films that are being aired, are the, that is the first time they're being aired or they're being aired only in a film circuit. Mm-hmm. And so they'll, like for example, an amazing film I watched last year was Level 16, which was only released a year after oh for my. theaters. So I got to see that before. Yeah. And that was so amazing because it was such a mind-blowing, amazing experience of a film and actually this fifth i think i want to focus a lot on the documentaries because i've been reading uh the documentary list and they are they are looking phenomenal i'm very excited assholes Mm was assholes a theory (laughs) (laughs) that's the name of the documentary just as a reminder was really really good because especially because it wasn't one of the documentaries that you finish and you're like I am so sad that I watched that. Oh. It was kind of like, I'm kind of sad, but at the same time, I know what to do now. Okay, yeah, that's to, good. To, yeah. like, not let people be assholes in the world, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. call them out. <laughs> at the end of the day, call people out <laughs> on their BS. Anyway, enough of that. <laughs> we are actually have another review by Sarah. Oh, uh, <laughs> today's my day. <laughs> Today is your day. And that is a tender thing. Yes, a thinner thing. I saw this a while back. Um, so 
It is put on by United Players of Vancouver. It is at the Jericho Arts Center and is going on until the 29th. So nine more days, people. No, like, not no. nine more <laughs> days. Never mind. You know what? Four <laughs> more days, people. <laughs> Go see it. Uh, <laughs> okay, so I'll start. A tender thing. It is, um, so Romeo and Juliet, but... Um, plot twist, they lived. (laughs) Plot twist, they didn't die. (laughs) Exactly. So it takes on, you know, what what would happen if Romeo and Juliet didn't die in that double suicide and they lived to an old age, you know, happily married. Um, And it kind of shows that. They only have two actors in it and there's a choir. The choir was only in the beginning, though. I was expecting more from them. Um, But was just the beginning i don't know anyways so it was just romeo and juliet um disclaimer it is in shakespearean language so yeah oh interesting so they kind of created an entire new script yeah i think okay so i am not sure if i actually got that right but it does say that playwright took um passages from the original uh, the original uh play and yeah just you check that out while i talk (laughs) so things i liked the, you could see how much in love Romeo and Juliet was and how much they actually loved each other and, you know, that it's a good thing they didn't die. And, okay, I don't. I can't say much about the, you know, like the synopsis or something like that because it is basically just Romeo and Juliet if they didn't die. Um, there is one thing I want to say, though. Romeo... Um, that guy has no character development in this play because in the end, uh, this is going to be, you know, a major spoiler. Okay, so major spoiler alert, please, if you don't like spoilers. Yeah, don't. Just turn the volume down for, like, a minute. Um, so they both die again. (laughs) Well, but they're all with age, right? Yeah, no, I'm so mad at this. (laughs) Playwright, why did you do this? (laughs) Um, so the thing is, uh, Juliet becomes sick, and she's like, hey, I cannot live with this pain anymore. Uh, help me die. So, you know, assisted suicide, basically. And so she drinks this poison, and then Romeo's like, oh, no, I cannot live without you. Let me die also. Okay. <laughs> she's she's crying, guys. <laughs> I am so mad about this. <laughs> because when I went into this play, I was expecting to, you know, see them actually die of old age, not because of poison again. <laughs> Um, anyways, <laughs> this is my rant. Rant is over. Spoilers over. <laughs> you can come back. Um, okay. But overall, like, is it a is the happy play? Is it e- both? So before you know that thing happens, let's say it's it's a happy play. You can see how much they're in love. You can see how much they love being together. And their their families life. Accept that. Um, yes. Well, they don't touch on their families in the play. Yeah. I feel like the family is such a major pl- part because that's what led them to, you know, kill yeah. themselves. Yeah, that's in the true. the original, like, and not touching on that family. I feel that m- there might be, like, a really huge gapping hole there. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that, actually. Yeah, you're right. Um, well, yeah, and so what was I going to say? Oh, one thing I found really genius that was really smart, the way they played with costumes. So basically, from the beginning of the play, if you um, if you look at the costumes and, you know, during the whole thing, 
you kind of understand what's going to happen because they're so the I don't know who was in charge of the costumes, but they did a great job because the way that there was for Romeo, there weren't costume changes until the very last scene. And mm-hmm. you understand why if you actually see it. I'm not going to say it. Yeah, I don't. And then for Juliet, there are a bunch of costume changes. And you're like, you know, why is this why like, why is this character changing costumes and the other one isn't? But then you understand why. I'm not going to say why. That okay. was really I'm, smart. I'm very curious uh, now. You know what? <laughs> but I'll learn from huge, it from you later. <laughs> yeah, huge, huge props to you. Yeah, to the person who did the costumes and all that. Yeah. Um, so, what else I was going to say? Overall? overall, yeah. I I liked it. I did. Um, I would even recommend it. Yeah, even with the thing I'm really <laughs> mad about, because it was a good play. The actors were amazing. I also cried in this play. Let me put that... <laughs> let me say this. <laughs> so, uh, let's go back to our standard. Like, if either of us cry, it's probably really good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um... Given so, that we cry a lot, but we also see really amazing yeah, things. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I don't cry at a lot of plays. I mean, I have cried in their shows in the past, but that's not because of the same reason. Let's not get into that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I did, you know, shed a tear on this one because it was the actors did a great job. They were amazing. And also one thing I really enjoyed is that the actors were actually, you know, the age they were supposed to be playing it. So it wasn't like 20 year olds trying to play a 50 year old Romeo and Juliet. So oh, so there were multiple actors and actresses. No, there was oh, just okay. two people, but they were, you know, I don't know how old they are. But I would assume they're in their fifties. Oh, I see. So that was really good because you could actually see, you know, yeah, Romeo and Juliet, you know, didn't die when they were what thirteen, fifteen, mm-hmm. and you know, got to live a happy life. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I actually want to do a few shout outs because. Again, there are so many wonderful things happening in Vancouver. And if you heard our show two weeks ago where I was talking, I went on a little rant about how we need to treat the place we live as a vacation. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. And go out there. Like, treat the place you live as a vacation spot and go out there and experience things. That's my mm-hmm. that's my moral of the story. But um, with that being said, unfortunately, we can't go out and see everything as much as we try. And we only have an hour on the show. So I want to give out as many shout outs as I can to things so that you guys that are listening to us are informed on what is going on and what you should see. So first off, um, Early Music Vancouver is launching its 50th anniversary with Les Conseils Spirituels, the Baroque Opera. Suites happening September 28th at 7.30 p.m. at the Christ Church Cathedral. Um, so that will be a beautiful, beautiful Baroque orchestra music. Um, if you are interested in that, they will also have uh, the violinist uh, Tafel Musique. Sorry. <laughs> Do you want me to no, read it? Is sorry. it French? It's a complicated name. Um, Do you want me to see it? <laughs> oh, so so actually, I read that wrong. Um, the violinist, who is the director of the Tafel Musique Baroque op- Orchestra, is Emerita Jane Lemon, and she is leading 
uh, 16 members of the Victoria Baroque in this performance. And honestly, we've had interviews with, with MEMV, so Early Music Vancouver, before, and they have been very interesting. Um, I don't know. There's something about classical music that really moves me, and I mm-hmm. think it moves everyone yep, who, yep. Ha- who has a chance to experience it live. And it's definitely an experience, right? Like, this is something that doesn't happen often. It is a one-night show only. If you have a chance, go out there and watch it. So September 28th um, at 7.30 p.m. at the Christchurch Cathedral. Another shout-out I want to give is that fall is starting. And with fall, there are a lot of book launches oh, yeah. coming up. And there are certain book launches. Um, a lot of book launches actually happen. There are completely free events, which is pretty cool. And yeah. you get to like meet the author and get a signed copy. That's and, always you know, amazing. If you're interested in the book. So a few of them that are happening here in Vancouver is Major Misconduct, um, The Human Cost of Fighting and Honky, which is very Canadian themed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> by Jeremy Allingham. It's, uh, the launch will be October 5th at 2 p.m. And you always can get more information on um, pul- um, on Arsenal Pulp Press website. So all the books I'm going to talk about now, they are Arsenal Pulp Press. They're being published by Arsenal Pulp Press. Um, th- this one is the one that I'm really interested in, and I'll probably be going to this um, launch. Mm-hmm. It's called The Cure for Hate, and it's about it's by Tony McAleer. And it's going to happen October 2nd and at the Langara College, which is pretty close to my house. So I'm like, ooh, can I go that? I can do that. Um, and it's A Cure for Hate is about Tony's or McAleer's um, passage from a former, from being a white supremacist to radical compassion as he puts it so the subtitle for a cure for hate is a former white supremacist journey from a violent extremist to radical compassion so i've I've been always been interested in how are people radicalized how are people put into this position where they think they're superior to anyone else Mm -hmm. and someone it's actually really interesting that someone has like what kind of willpower does it take to leave that mentality mm-hmm. and like you know don't not be that person anymore and so very interesting hope you guys can ch- check it out and if you can't check out the launch i mean the book is still going to be out there right yeah so, exactly <laughs> um another one that i'm also really interested in is i hope we choose love and uh the subtitle is a trans girl's notes from the end of the world oh man and so a lot of times trans voices aren't heard. And I think this is probably a very interesting book, and yeah. especially from a perspective. I mean, I don't I don't think I've ever heard about a dystopic um, no. book from a trans person's mm-hmm. per- perspective. And this just sounds really interesting yeah, overall. Yeah, By Kai Ching Tom. And um, the book launch is on October 18th at 7 p.m. at, sh- at Massey Books on east georgia street and it's a free event as well so the last one i'm gonna talk about actually i lied i'm gonna talk about two more <laughs> um the blue road it's a fable of migration um it's a graphic novel that i love graphic novels so you know graphic novels are lovely and graphic novels are also known as comics but mm-hmm. more importantly graphic novels are a beautiful form of art and literature and 
yeah, I, I wish the world had more full graphic novels that aren't short. Um, yeah, I hope you can catch it October 19th at 6 cool. p.m. By who? By words by Wade Compton and illustrations by April Della Noche okay. Milne. Milne. <laughs> Um, so, and the story, sorry, I didn't even talk about the story. The story is, uh, about a girl without a family, a past or a proper home. And she lives alone in a swamp made out of ink. Um, and yeah. And so she, you might find people like, like her, you know? Um, and then the last one I wanted to talk about is her, um, Hustling Verse, an anthology of sex workers' poetry. And honestly, I don't think sex workers are heard about enough, and I think it's pretty interesting they're making an entire anthology about sex workers' poetry. And that will be November 19th at 7 p.m. So that's kind of a while away, but, you know, it's Mm -hmm. coming. Good to know. And I just wanted to let you guys know. And so we are now going to have an interview to end the show. And... Oh, actually, we have one more thing to mention, to talk about. This is yeah. really short. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, worry about it because it's pretty cool. But I mean, yeah, <laughs> but, like, don't worry that, you know, it's going to be too long. No. Okay, so this is First Pick Handmade. This is a... How to put this? This is, like, a pop-up shop kind of thing. So there are multiple artists who are selling their handmade... Um, what do you call them products yes that is the word so this one uh, this the one i went was more fashion um there were hats bags clothes like wool stuff scarves beanies and then there were also accessorized i actually bought a cool pair of earrings and some um (laughs) what do you some rings so that was really cool there were also some hygiene stuff like bath bombs, you know, shower gel, oh, stuff nice. like that. Yeah, that was really cool. They're all handmade, Vancouver-based or BC-based. And So if you're looking for something sustainable, if you're looking for something nice, cheap, and cool, yeah. this is it. It has ended this year, but keep a lookout yeah, for... Also, yeah, they have these every year. So the one... the. F- Fashion one was on September 14th and 15th, but they are having a home decor one actually on October. It's on October 19th and 20th. It's they start at 11 a.m. and all the artists, everybody who are selling their stuff, are there until 6 p.m. each day. So you can go whenever you want between those times. Uh, The admission is three dollars. You can get it get the tickets on Eventbrite online, or you could just pay cash at the door. I feel like that one's pr- probably easier. Um, it is on Heritage Hall on Main Street, so also really easy to go. And I actually forgot one more thing. I want to talk about this um, another launch book launch. It's Agne Agnes Murderous, which is about Agnes. Um, I don't know her last <laughs> name. I don't know her last name. Okay, but anyway, she's a famed. Um, legendary serial killer like a Madden oh, serial man. killer and this is a graphic novel so I'm very oh. excited we're actually going to review this graphic novel sometime okay. soon but there is a book, book launch that's happening on Thursday September 26th from 7 to 10 p.m. at the Lost and Found Cafe on 33rd West Hastings Street uh, admission is free and there will be giveaways and light refreshments so honestly nice. why not go there and and you know get it um, 
And also personalized copies of the book will be available courtesy of Pulp Fiction Books, which Ooh. is the publisher. So, you know, novels are very exciting. And I find graphic novels super exciting. And now, for real, we're going to have an <laughs> interview, actually, after our PSA and ad breaks. Fun. Um, but, yeah, and Sarah is actually going to leave right now. Yeah, I have a midterm fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, good luck. Thanks. And see you guys in a bit. Awesome. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. Last year, over 650 BC teens aged out of foster care without a permanent family. Adoption is not just for babies. Teens need families too. Only 24 teens in BC were adopted last year. November is Adoption Awareness Month. To find out more about adopting a teen, contact the Adoptive Families Association of BC. Call 1-877-ADOPT-07 or visit us at bcadopt.com. Hello, everyone. I am so happy to be here with Gerald Vanderwood, who is the director of Beckett 19, which is one of the many, many amazing plays that the UBC Film and Theater is putting on this year, on their 2019-2020 season. Hello, Gerald. Hello. Uh, how are you today? I'm good. Uh, it's nice to see all the students back on campus listening to the music and everything else. Quite, yeah. uh, quite uh, energizing for me. And so Back at 19, I know that it runs a little bit differently than all the other shows that are put on. Yeah, we do. It's a fundraiser initially. I mean, um, there's a group of us. There's about five or between five and seven of us alumni from the theater department uh, from the program. Uh, so some BFA actors. Uh, I'm an MFA directing student from 2000. I'm the longest serving MFA student in the history of UBC. I waited uh, right up until the nine, uh, ninth year, 363rd day, I believe it was, before I put my thesis in. So I could oh. hold the record <laughs> as the slowest student in the history of uh, UBC. But uh, the group of us have been working together for about 20 years. So Deb Pickman uh, is one of the alumni in the show, and she is uh, Arts and Culture District, and she's, um, she serves in that capacity as a communicator there. Uh, Beverly Bartle, who's a BFA actor. Uh, Cam Cronin, who's the administrator of the Department of Theater and Film, he's involved. Uh, Joe Prosick, who works in the library. So we're all UBC people, and we all uh, come together once a year. And we start usually in January because we like to take a long, slow look at Beckett. Um, for us, uh, our career paths led in different directions. Uh, I had thought at one point I was going to be a director on Broadway, like you do when you're 25. Uh, or an actress, or, or, an actress <laughs> or, or whatever. Or an it is. actor on Broadway, you know. Absolutely. Like, and then, I'm uh, going to be on Broadway. That's <laughs> <it>. That's <laughs> then student debts come in, and it turns out that you're good at administration for some reason. And so, um, you know, I, uh, we all sort of followed a different path. Uh, I, I know Deb actually is uh, an actor in the city, and she has Shameless Hussey Productions. My wife does acting as well. So they remained in the, in the zone, so as it were. Cam and I, Cam has done actually quite a bit of film, um, and I myself, uh, I just do this one show a year, and it's, it's it's a way to be creative and still have, uh, when you're working for the university, the assistant dean job's pretty busy. 
but I do enjoy this one little creative output. And we all work for free, and the donations for the evening all go into the Peter Loeffler Memorial Fund, so it helps students as well. Awesome. So one of the pieces around the iteration around this really was around we wanted to do a show, and so we, we offer up what we're going to do every year to the theater department. They can decide if they want to do it or not. It's not uh, that sort of thing. Um, we, we, we certainly want to be a value-add to the theater department program. And there are lots of students, and so we'd like to work with the students as well so they get a chance to, because sometimes um, the main stage shows are really geared towards the courses. We're just a sort of an outlier, and so anybody can join. Uh, we'll find a role for you, and we'll train you. Uh, we'll train you in the backstage life. Uh, certainly, I have a long history of technical theater knowledge as well as directing. Uh, and uh, it's a lot of fun working with the students, and that's we wanted to give something back. We wanted to contribute financially to the Peter Loeffler Fund, and uh, we wanted to do Beckett. We all love Beckett. We all have this kind of thing. For and that. can I ask you why you all love Beckett so much? What is it about? You know, uh, when you look at the work of Samuel Beckett, uh, it's the minimalist quality of it. For myself, it's a, it's a sort of lens that I apply to my life uh, in a way that... Uh, you know, I, I appreciate the joke of Beckett where you're sort of doomed to live this life, doomed to try to find yourself, really, uh, and you can't ever leave that particular journey. And I find the, uh, the dar it's dark humor sometimes in Beckett, uh, but it's also economy of language. I mean, Beckett, when he wrote, really paid attention to what he was writing. There's no word wasted. One of the jokes of um, a play like Come and Go is there's 121 words in it. And he struggled with it for some months, and he wrote his publisher, and he said, oh, I finally had the breakthrough. And the publisher wrote back and said, well, what was the breakthrough? He goes, I realized I had one comma too many. And, <laughs> and so uh, that level of detail of Beckett, so you start looking at it, and when you do the work on it for a period of time, like 20 years, you actually start to really plumb the depths of the poetry of the language. And it really does get down to the, you know, the sort of central existential questions of what are we doing here? What does it actually mean to be alive? And, and can I know myself? Will I ever know myself? Um, his biography, Damned to Fame, is a, is a funny one for me because uh, it was written by James Nolson. And it really is that thing of you are cursed to forever try to learn uh, who you are in life. Uh, but at the same time, it's quite comical because you have to. And how many times have Beck and 19 been? So this is, our, this is kind of our 19th iteration. Um, it all started with Peter when I was first, I was poor as a church mouse when I, when I left university, of course, mass student debts and everything else. And um, so I got a job in the box office. I was a ticket seller for them. And uh, Peter came, Peter was a, a professor there, and um, he, uh, he came up to me in the box office one and said, oh, Mr. Vanderwood, I, you know, Let's do a little evening of Beckett, because Peter loved the absurd theater. And nobody does absurd theater. You know, when you do something like Not I, which is a, really a 13-minute, 47-second monologue at high speed, you don't typically see that at the Arts Club necessarily or in those places. So Peter loved that kind of work. He would come to me and he'd say, listen, uh, let's do a little show, and let's make sure we have a good party afterwards. <laughs> so he reaches into his pocket, and Peter was a very uh, eccentric fellow. And out come these crisp, $100, but he, he counts it like one, two, three, four. Let's go with $500. I'm going to give you $500. You put on a little show, get some cake and some, some champagne or something, and uh, pay for the rights and some costumes. And I went, okay. And so uh, we decided Things that... Like, okay. I know. <laughs> so it was okay. a very odd conversation. I mean, Pierre <laughs> comes into the lobby and, and does this to me. It was around 3 in the afternoon, I remember. And so I went, Okay. And so that was in 95. And so we thought, well, let's do an evening on Beckett's birthday, April 13th. And so we started the Beckett birthday bash. That's how it actually started. 
And so um, we did it. We did one night, and then we had a huge party afterwards. It was only one night, so if you didn't, the idea was if you didn't go on that one night, you were going to miss it. And so people came, and we had this huge party, and then we had, and Peter got up on a table, and we all toasted uh, to Beckett's health on his birthday. And then the show ended, and I thought, well, that's it, right? And we did, I think, three small pieces that night. It was about a 45-minute show, and then Peter comes back next to me and goes, oh, Mr. Vanderwood, you know, we should do another one of those little Beckett things. It's quite fun. So out comes the one, two, let's go with five is such a great number. Let's do $500. So he gives me another $500. So I bought cake, champagne, and all that stuff. And we did it again. And then we, and he kept coming back. And so it just became this thing where we just started doing it. And, and at the time, we were, the money just went into the theater program, general money. We didn't have any scholarships at that point set up or whatever. And then, uh, so we did it for four years. And then, and then Peter sadly ca- uh, got cancer and he passed away. And uh, I was uh, one of his caretakers with him uh, in those moments uh, at the, towards the end of his life. And uh, it, fascinating. That's a whole other story of the monastic life of Peter Loeffler that I could tell you. It was quite interesting. Uh, you know, he lived very simply. Uh, at one point, I was, I was taking care of him. Uh, and I went over to his apartment. He doesn't have a phone to tap on the window because he couldn't even buzz you in to get into his place and so he was lived on the main floor and I came in and uh, his apartment had almost nothing in it he, he truly a man who lived very very simply except he had books he had every kind of penguin classic you know from the Greeks to the Romans to the whatever uh, and he had read them all and these kind of lined his entire apartment nothing else in there uh, everything was arranged perfectly in mathematical precision uh, but the best part was there were all these red pens in his place over 20 years of him bringing home a red pen from work because he always liked to mark <laughs> with a red pen so I, I, uh, I went in there one night to make him dinner and uh, I thought well I'll just turn on his stove and I turned on the stove and I looked away and I looked back and uh, all this smoke starts coming out of the stove and I'm like oh my god <laughs> the stove and in 20 years, he had never turned on a stove. He had eaten out his entire like. He, there's, there used to be a little uh, a little uh, restaurant in the village that he used to go to every night, and he went there every night, and he would have his hot pot. And we went there for dinner once, and they just served him food. They didn't even ask him. He, they knew what he wanted. Fascinating guy. Anyway, sorry, I, I went <laughs> off track a bit there. But um, all all that to say that when he passed away, it obviously had an impact on me. He was uh, a good personal friend of mine. And so we didn't do it that year out of respect. And then the fifth year came around, and we thought, well, really, we should do one more because five was his magic number. So we thought, okay, we'll do five. And so we did it. But we also did it a bit as an homage to Peter, and we put in some Peter-esque things that uh, people very much appreciated. Uh, there's a blue kimono story that I can't tell you because it's too long to tell. <laughs> uh, but it was quite funny. Um, one day, one day. One day. That, that <laughs> it, it is an interesting story. But anyway, uh, so we started doing all these Beckets. Uh, and so we did this one last show, and uh, and we realized, you know, we should really do a memorial award for him um, because it, it would be important to give back and to keep him going kind of thing because he gave me this sort of magical gift for five years and on all the actors that worked on the show. We had a lot of fun. And so we came back to the theater department and said, you want to do another one? And they went, okay. And so then we thought, and so it just kept building, and that's where we are today. We've we've raised about thirty three thousand dollars, I think, over the last over the nineteen years that we've done it for the Memorial Award, and um, it's just been great fun. Awesome. Well, that well, that's great to hear. And so, 
is it still a one-night show? It's uh, No, we've actually did four. We thought, well, people got angry with me and said, well, I didn't get to see your show. I was like, okay, well, we'll do, we'll do four. And four is enough because, uh, you know, there, there are a lot to work on. It's only about an hour in length. Uh, what we do is typically we pull together shorter pieces of Beckett work that you wouldn't normally see, and we put it together in a sort of compilation evening. Uh, we sometimes take some of his prose and turn it into plays, small little short scenes. We've now done movie. We we started doing movies lately of little Beckett stuff, and so now we've got some movies as well. So we like to try and mix it up in the evening, and then there's still shake uh, cake. Sorry, cake and champagne afterwards. Uh, so we encourage people to stay around for a little drink and just to celebrate. Celebrate? Um, why not? I mean, life is here to be celebrated. It right? is. I, well, Peter loved that. Right? He, he would always say, "Oh, you always must have a good party after." So, well, I'm excited to see what's coming up. Um, but also, I was curious. So how is it different? How do you make sure it's different every year? I mean, 19 years. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm guessing you've done a, a lot, lot of if not all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have. We're now repeating. The, the show, we're, the one, we're doing two pieces uh, in this evening. The first one is Not I, which is just a mouth that's only lit and a woman speaking. It's, uh, okay. it's a very okay. interesting show. <laughs> you know, it was written in 75, and it's very much in the vein of uh, what you would call now beat poetry in a way, uh, except that it's a, it is a story of a woman, uh, so it's not quite that poetic in its nature. Uh, and we did that 18 years ago, and it's the Everest of Beckett Place, the hardest one to do technically for the actor involved. Um, it's high speed. She oh, will, she goes out into this world, this world, tiny little thing before it's time to cover. What? Who? No girl. And it's and it goes very fast. So you have two problems there. One is technically the breath, trying to get the rhythm right, but at the same time you have to capture that audience because it is going fast. So you have to start bring them in, and then you have to let the poetry of the language swing out. And if you get it. Uh, if you catch the curve, it's an amazing experience. We just had a rehearsal um, yesterday, I think it was Thursday. And uh, wow, when it sings, it is like no other music in theater that you hear. Uh, you, have to, you have to be ready for it a little bit. Um, and so it's, it's high-wire technical acting, really. You have to know it so well, and you have to be so on it and so in it there's no room for error because you are running at a high, 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 high rate. So that's the opening. And it's funny, when, I, when we put the evening together, you never realize a theme will emerge. And in this one, you know, the first part, the first act really is all about language and words. But the second act is a, a piece at the end that we bookend it with uh, called Act Without Words. It's all silent, uh, which is quite f funny. We didn't think to do that. It just happened that way. Uh, and so that one is an entire mime show. I don't want to give away any of the details of it. Um, well, I'm, I'm very curious. But it, it, it is it is an interesting <laughs> evening, and it and it's meant you know it's kind of meant like a meal. You sit down to a dinner meal, and we're trying to bring you in with that sense of uh, okay, you're here in the theater. Let us let us show you what theater can do, and that's why we work on it for so long because it's important to us to try to really get the depth of these pieces. And what and is this your first time directing? Oh God, no! I've <laughs> I, I've directed over forty. Sorry, is it your first oh. time directing Beckett? No, no, I, 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 I pretty much only do Beckett now oh. <laughs> uh, because of the economy of language. He's a master writer. You, you, you start exploring the genius of the guy, and you realize he's actually writing on about nine or ten different levels. He's like a chess master. And just when you think, oh, I, I figured out this piece, the floor draw, and you work on it again, and all the pieces are connected. Every time you work on any Beckett play, it informs the others. And you start to build this sort of knowledge base of, oh, that's what this is. That's what 
that's what we're trying to do. And uh, almost, I would say, like yoga or almost like mm-hmm. jazz musicians, you know, when you get it really going and when you're working with a set of actors for 20 years, you get to that level of, okay, we're going this way with this. And it's not about setting a performance anymore. It's about arranging it in such a way that then the artist can just take it and go. And they can, they can deviate to the left. They can wiggle around, go right and left with it, and really make it into something um, that carries that audience along. It is the most interactive theater I think you'll ever see. And do you have a favorite? I, I do. Uh, I don't... I, I don't. It's funny. Not I right now is my favorite, just because it's like, oh, I, wow, the depth. Uh, <laughs> and plus, um, like, you come back to a Beckett after 18 years, and you realize, like, 18 years ago, I didn't know anything. And I was like, oh... And now it's like, oh, okay, I see now. It's a whole other level of, of, of um, ingredients that we can put into it. Uh, my favorite, though, is Endgame, uh, by and far. And is Endgame going to be in the, this year's show? No, that's a full land. That's one of his majors, oh. and that would be an evening all into itself. I've done it. Have I done it three times? No, I've done it twice. Uh, it was my thesis production here at UBC many years ago uh, in uh, 1990. And... Um, yeah, uh, it's got the best opening line. The, here's, here's to me the essence of Becca right here. The opening line of Ham is, can there be misery loftier than mine? And I love that line because it's, it's got hope in the beginning of it. Can there be misery? It goes right down to the depths of despair of life. Loftier, which raises you up again, than mine, which brings it back to the personal. And, and when you start looking at that, I mean, that's a lot to put in a line. And obviously you wouldn't say to an actor, get all that. But, um, you know, there's, ma- there's so many examples 